All right, gentlemen, we're uh, we're close enough to get started. So, um, just by way of introducing us today, to you know, again, what we're doing is we've been through the body of Matthew. We have more or less been through the body of Mark, with the exception of the parables that happen at the end, where Jesus teaches us about the last things. We're going to hold off and let that be the conclusion of the series. So that has us tracking back to Luke. And we did last week, uh, Luke 6, which is the first parable that shows up. And remember, even though it's called a parable by Luke, this is around verse uh, 39 is where we started. There's a number of parables in here or elements of parables in here. And so what I want to do, and I hope I'm not going to uh, irk you right off the bat, but we'll just go forward from Luke 6, and we go to Luke 8. And here in Luke 8, we're going to see, of course, Luke's introduction to the parables, the theology of the parables which has been given to us more richly in both Matthew and Mark. That's where we spent our time. And so this, again, is, you know, so that seeing they won't see and hearing they won't understand that aspect of the parables, that if you believe in Jesus, if you're his disciple, the parables are for you to receive even more. If you've rejected Jesus in his plain word, the parables are so you're going to receive even less. Okay, that's the nature. And then from 8, if we move forward to 10, that's the next place. At least we find a full-on parable. And it's where I want to spend probably the majority of our time tonight at chapter 10, verse 25. The parable of the Good Samaritan, which... I think in many respects will be familiar to you, except I, in the same way, if you recall back in Matthew, we looked at the rich young ruler and some of the things that Jesus has to say to the rich young ruler, it culminates in that parable where at the end of the day, all the workers in the vineyard receive the same. And I express some dissatisfaction with the way that I've heard that parable preached and explained. And the same is true here for the Good Samaritan. So I'll get into the context with you, and I'll just let you know, I, I don't think I've ever preached a sermon on the Good Samaritan that I've been happy with. The, the reason for that being is I do believe that in order to explain it the way I understand it, to Lutheran people um, would take an hour and back and forth. And so that's really what I hope to accomplish tonight is to go back and forth with you and we can understand it. If even in a less certain way, you may not, you may walk away and think, well, I had a better grasp on it before. (laughs) Well, yeah, that might be because you were sort of like, you know, grasping onto the tip of the iceberg, thinking you got it when there's a whole iceberg underneath that's much more rich to uh, contemplate and know and understand. So unapologetically, my goal is going to be at first to confound you (laughs) as we look at this. Why I think the standard Lutheran way of treating this in a 15-minute sermon doesn't work 
or at least doesn't work very well. And then we'll dig into why and then what ways in which we can take this. And I assure you that in the end, we're all still Lutheran. Okay. <laughs> it's not it's not that the theology is wrong. It's this shoehorning this into an overly simplistic theology does violence to the text. And you're going to see that. Okay. All right. That's my introduction. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask your blessings as we contemplate the teaching of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. May his words, his parable of the Good Samaritan and the others enlighten our hearts and minds that we may be ever more conformed into the image of your Son, that we may think his thoughts, speak his words, do his deeds, and as good and well-trained disciples, be much like our teacher. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, the overarching context uh, here in chapter 10 isn't all that important. In the preceding section, Jesus has said, and of course, I mean, we could have a class on this section itself. I don't intend to, but he, uh, if you look at verse 21, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You see an aspect of the reversal theology here, that the little children are brought to understanding while the wise and understanding are brought to confusion. So a reversal motif. Now, I only bring that up because if you look at verse 25, which is the start of our section for tonight, the parable of the good Samaritan, and behold, a lawyer, an expert in the law, not a legal expert, the way we understand the word lawyer, but an expert in the Torah, an expert in the Old Testament law. Okay, would we reckon him among the wise and understanding, or would we recommend, uh, you know, keep him uh, in our minds in the little uh, the little children category? Probably the wise and understanding. So we can expect a bit of a reversal here. That might be the only contextual cue that I can pick up on. Otherwise, it's kind of a new event and a new section. All right. So at verse twenty five. Behold, a lawyer stood up. Now, already this is uh, antagonistic language. To put him to the test. Ek pyrotzon. So from pyrosmon, lead us not into temptation. It's that word to tempt Jesus. I believe in Luke's gospel, the only other place this verb has been used um, for someone toward Jesus is Satan toward Jesus. So I'll give you a little flavor. (laughs) This at least is begun in plain hostility. So an expert in the scriptures stands up to put Jesus to the test, to try to overthrow him would probably be a better way of, a more dynamic way of translating it. What does he say? He says, teacher... 
And in some respects, I think that teacher, even though he doesn't intend it at all, is sort of the anchor point of the entire thing. Does he see Jesus as his teacher or not? He doesn't. So what he thinks about the law is going to be entirely different ultimately than what Jesus thinks about the law. And if Jesus were his teacher, he would understand the law in an entirely different way. I think that's the anchor point. And that has its parallel, by the way, in the rich young ruler. I think that there's something very similar going on there too. The rich young ruler's problem isn't that he desires to keep the commandments. His problem is that his true master is mammon. So with his true master as mammon, he keeps the commandments and they're fruitless. If his true master were Jesus and he kept the commandments, that'd be altogether different. Same here. If this man, in fact, had Jesus as his teacher, his keeping of the commandments would be fruitful. And we're going to see precisely in what way. But since he doesn't have Jesus as his teacher, and he means this with utter disdain and irony and hypocrisy, we're going to see that his whole understanding of the law is skewed as well. I think that's the linchpin of this text. Okay, teacher. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I have preached it this way, and I would never preach it this way again. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is a law question. You can't do anything to inherit eternal life. Ha ha, you're wrong from the start. Why would I not teach that? Why would I never preach that this way ever again? Um, I learned how to preach it this way, by the way, in seminary. Okay. Why would I never preach it this way again? Because if that's what the man is asking, then Jesus would give him the answer that I just gave. Then Jesus would say to him, hey, that's a law question, or what do you mean do to inherit? You just have to, what, what does anyone have to do to inherit? You have to be born into the right family. And if Jesus understood it, him asking that as such, like making this theological confusion, Jesus would very easily say, well, you have to be baptized. You have to be born of water and the Spirit into the household of God, and then you will inherit the things of God, of which is eternal life. But that's not what's going on here. Now, this guy's an expert in what? The Torah, the law. We're about to see two experts in the law talk about the law. We're about to see, like, you want to talk about insider baseball, technical theological argument? That's what we're going to have here. Right? They're not interested in this gotcha theology of like, oh, you said do and inherit. Gotcha. You know, that's not what's happening here. Okay. So if I can, if I can move on then to, from uh, into verse 26. All right, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? Okay, so the man is a nomakos, a lawyer. What is written in the nomo, the law? How do you read it? Now, that's a rabbinic question. It's a good faith question. It's not antagonistic. Um, but it's how do you, you're an expert in the scriptures. How do the scriptures answer this question? I mean, that's entire. What do I do to inherit eternal life? You're an expert in the scriptures. What do the scriptures tell you? That's what Jesus says. I mean, if anything, it's a sola scriptura point, isn't it? Okay. 
So the Namakas, the expert in the law, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Okay, now even if we even if we um, look at the original question, teacher, what shall I do? It's the poie or the poeos language, and that's the exact language with which Jesus responds. Poie, uh, poie, do this, and you will live. Why is exactly in twenty five? What is it in um, Poye? Yeah, thanks. Okay. It's uh, it's Poye in twenty five. Also, I just didn't I just didn't write it in twenty five. I don't know why I didn't. I must have got distracted. Twenty five. Poyes. So Poyes shows up again. Poyes. Sorry, gentlemen. Bear with me one second. I just want to play sauce. Play sauce. Good. That's exactly what shows up later. Okay. So play sauce and play same uh, same form. So what shall I do? Do this, and you will live. Okay. Now, could Jesus be doing a kind of got you here? Uh, you know, maybe so. Maybe so. In in the same way that Jesus says to the rich young man. Sell everything you've got and follow me. I mean, but already, even in that answer, look how Jesus isn't like, what do I have to do to eternal inherit eternal life? Just believe. That's it. That's not what Jesus says to the rich man. Sell everything you have and follow me. You've got the wrong God. And, and so here too, I think, Again, there's a sense in which Jesus says, you've answered correctly, go and do this and you will live. I mean, the man probably knows he can't do that in the same way the rich man knows he can't give up everything. Okay, so this man wants more. And that's why the conversation continues. So I think in that sense, Jesus does kind of stonewall him, kind of do a minor gotcha of like, okay, keep the law. That's sufficient. You already had your answer. Now, next then, the man at verse 29, the the expert in the scripture says, um, he desiring to decaiosose, justify himself. Now, what does that mean? said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? All right. So if the man, if the expert in the law is thinking, all right, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? All right, I've got to love God and love my neighbor as myself. Now, maybe, and this is the way the study note takes it, maybe the man it like says, okay, but who's my neighbor? Maybe if I can narrow that down, I can justify myself. And that's kind of the way the study note takes it. I'm not really opposed to that. I'm just not satisfied by it. So this man thinks that he loves God with all his heart, mind, and soul, but and he loves those, the neighbors next to him in a way that qualifies, but just not all of them. I, I don't know. I don't know. Color me disgruntled with it. <laughs> it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. 
Okay. So what does it mean for him to justify himself? I mean, does he think he's going to stand before God righteous if he can just narrow down the number of neighbors he's got to serve? Again, color me not convinced that he's that stupid. So I think something else is going on. Why does he want to why does he want to justify himself? I think in the I think in the straight up sense, he feels like he's just gotten bested by Jesus. What do I have to do to be saved or have eternal life? What do the scriptures tell you? They tell me to do this. Yep, there's your answer. Now, remember what the man's trying to do. The man just tried to trap Jesus. Did he succeed? No, Jesus made him, in fact, look like an idiot. I I mean, that's really what has happened heretofore. Again, if these are two experts in the scriptures and he says, what do the scriptures look, you know, what do the scriptures say? They say this. Yep, exactly. So I think the wanting to justify himself is more like wanting to wrangle further with Jesus, wanting to still come out on top. I don't think it really has anything whatsoever to do with him desiring to stand before God on the basis of his own works and merits, if only he can narrow the definition of neighbor down to do so. Just seems to me implausible. All right, but we can leave that aside because what I think we're going to find at the end of this too is that there's some double entendre going on, and this may well be a point. I think in the first sense, he simply is not willing to sit there with the pie in his face that Jesus has just delivered. So he says, and who is my neighbor? Now, why would this actually be a pointed question? Jesus has been eating and drinking with who? Tax collectors and sinners, turncoats and not good Jews, Gentiles among them. So here is fertile ground for a nomikos to pin you. Who is my neighbor? If he says everyone, he's going to say, these people aren't friends and neighbors of God. They're his enemies. And you're their friend. What does that make you? Now, if he says just the Jews, the Jews are my neighbors, God's people are my neighbors, well, then why are you eating with tax collectors, sinners, and Gentiles? Now, I think that's probably the trap, and that's probably the dikaiosune, the righteousness this man wants to re-deliver that pie in the face and to shut Jesus down, which was his very goal from the start. He stood up to put him to the test to throw him down. That's what I really think is going on here. Okay. So why, why also do I think that? Because look in Jesus' answer. Jesus' answer involves a Samaritan, an outsider. Jesus knows exactly what, how this man is trying to entrap him, and he weaves that into the answer. So that the bitter pill at the end is that it's going to be the Samaritan who's the good guy. Who's the outsider who is despicable in a Jew's eyes um, because of who they are and what they represent? See how I think you can see how at this point, like you could never preach this, (laughs) or at least I haven't found a way to preach this to a Lutheran congregation in a way that doesn't have a lot of uh, room for back and forth. So it's a hard pill to swallow because we've all heard this. I think in a very different frame. 
all right, who's my neighbor? Now Jesus is going to get himself out of the trap. And I think as is Jesus' way, he's actually in the end going to help and be compassionate to this man who's been trying to entrap him, although that's up for debate. All right, at verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So those of you paying attention on this last Sunday, we were going the opposite direction with Jesus, (laughs) from Jericho to Jerusalem. (laughs) Now we're going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among Lestes, robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, I mean, I think already the language is evocative to us as Christians because we know what happens to Jesus. We know that outside of Jerusalem, Jesus is stripped and beaten and left half dead hanging upon a cross. So in a sense, it's already evocative, but it would we would do well, I think, to just try to really go down to the ground level. I imagine as if we were hearing this for the first time before Jesus' crucifixion, because that'll help us see, I think, in a primary sense, what he's doing here with the man before we get to these secondary reflections. Okay, so then 31, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, so we know, <laughs> we know he saw him, he looked right at him, he passed by the other side. Now, all manner of speculation emerges here. Maybe he saw the man and either he was half dead or dead or who knows what his status was. He couldn't go up and touch him because he'd become ceremonially unclean and then he couldn't go forward with his priestly duties. Okay, whatever. Jesus mentions none of that. The point is he sees him and he keeps on trucking. Now, he might have kept on trucking because he is following the law and doesn't want to become unclean. That may be the case in that sense. But either way, this representative of the law keeps on trucking this priest. Okay, who's next? Uh, So likewise, a Levite. I mean, there's also potentially a self-serving element. If they tarry and help this man, they themselves could be jumped. That's always put forward by commentators. I don't know. Those might be examples of overreading it. The priest and the Levite are ideal Jews. So likewise, a Levite. And of course, you remember that um, all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests, but they're all part of that priestly uh, tribe. Okay, and when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So again, they're staying away, whether out of the law or self-preservation. Either one, frankly, fits. It's It's not necessary, but it would fit the theme, I think. Jesus actually leads off. It's just a little bit more subtle in the, or I mean, a little bit, this subtle difference. So at verse 33, he just leads off with Samaritan. So the English renders it right in terms of English grammar, but a Samaritan. So the Samaritan is the shock, is the slap across the face. Samaritan is just how he leads off. As he journeyed, now that's different. 
because the priest and the Levite are going on local business. They're not journeying. This is a Samaritan, so he's an outsider, a non-Jew, one of the despised class, and he's journeying. He would have even less reason to stop, and he would be even more a target if there's robbers in the area. So Jesus adds that nice little detail. He came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds. And again, he's not just carrying uh, bandages with him. So uh, what, what is he binding up his wounds with? Strips of his own clothing, his own bedding. I mean, there's a, there's a cost involved. There's a dirtiness involved. He can't just go to the ride his camel, camel down to the local laundromat and toss those in. So there's a, there's a cost involved, and there may even be a destruction of whatever he has with him in order to do this. So already, already he's doing a lot by binding up his wounds. Then he also pours on oil and wine, which always strikes us as like, well, whatever he had at hand. But wine does have disinfectant properties. Oil was viewed as their panacea, their soap and their healing and their everything. So as best as he can and sparing none of his own personal expense, he cares for this man with the oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him there. So for this first day or this first night or whatever the case may be, he takes care of him himself, which is just another wonderful touch in the story Jesus says. He doesn't just immediately hand him off, but takes care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii. Now that's two days wages. So at minimum, it's covering two days for the innkeeper to be or some other person to be single, I mean, single-handedly, like completely absorbed with the care of this one man. Like you don't take a denarii and just check in, you know, twice. You're, this is your full-time duty. That's what you're being paid to do. So he gives them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. It's the same exact language of him when he took care of him at the end of 34, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Here's this foreigner amongst the Jews writing them a blank check for the sake of this man. I mean, if you want a recipe to be exploited, that's probably it, but he's willing to do it because of his great compassion for this wounded man who he doesn't even know. All right. So Jesus' parable is complete, and you have the rabbinical answer to the rabbinical question, who is my neighbor? So now 36, Jesus is going to make the man answer for himself. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers. He said, the one who showed him 
eleos, mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, the overarching question, there's two questions here. The overarching question is, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice that Jesus doesn't say, believe in me and don't do any good works because believing in me is enough. He just doesn't say that. Um, What must I do or what shall I do to inherit eternal life? How, do, how does the typical Lutheran sermon answer this? You can't do anything. You're the man beaten up, laying half dead by the side of the road. Jesus is the good Samaritan that comes to rescue you. Is that in and of itself wrong? No. I don't think it is. But is that at all what Jesus is saying? I don't think it at all is. At least not first way through, because what does Jesus say at verse 37? You go and poie, do likewise. What shall I do? Show mercy. Now, the secondary question, I think, doesn't change the original question. What, what shall I do, okay, to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, keep, you know, hey, keep the law. Okay. That's interesting. Then he says, who's my neighbor? And by the end of it, Jesus answers, you go and do likewise. You go and do as this. Now, this man showed extreme compassion and extreme mercy. Okay, so I think that that in and of itself leads us to a profoundly contemplative point. And I think we have to dig around to find out what this means. And I'm going to try to cut it short by just telling you what I think it means. And I'll point out some other things where I think that Jesus and Luke have wrapped in double entendre and want us to think even more deeply in another angle. But let me tell you, like, while we're at this first level, what I think is going on, Okay. What I think is going on is um, this man views the law as what? He views it as the vehicle of self-interest. What is the law there to do? It's there primarily to get me into heaven. Apart from Jesus... That's the only way to see the law. The law is, hey, do it and get into heaven. Is that going to work for you? Nope. But this man hasn't received Jesus as his true didascale, as his true teacher. So he's stuck viewing the law as something inherently self-serving. That's all it is. Okay. But Jesus here, contra modern Lutheranism, doesn't say the law is your problem. It's the gospel. The law question is your problem. You need a gospel question. The law is your problem. You need me. That's not straight up what Jesus does. Jesus says, because you don't have me, your whole view of the law is skewed. Let me show you what the law really looks like. And the law in Jesus' hands, in Jesus' mouth, looks like what? 
mercy. So like I would ask a Lutheran rabbinically, is the cross the fulfillment of the law? On the cross is Jesus loving God with all of his heart, soul, strength, and mind. Absolutely. Is Jesus on the cross loving his neighbor more than himself or as himself? Yes. Indeed, more than himself. Yes. What is the essence of the fulfillment of that law? Elias, mercy. I think Jesus understands the essence of the law as mercy. Or to put it another way, the essence of the law, not as something you do in order to serve yourself, in order to get into heaven, but precisely that which manifests itself, love for God and love for neighbor in an outpouring of self-sacrificial mercy. Jesus isn't telling the man, do this in order to earn your way into heaven. He's saying, in effect, this is the essence of the law. This is what it is to do the law unto eternal life. And by the way, if the man backtracks, who is, this, who is teaching him this? Jesus. If the man sees it, sees the beauty, understands the true nature of the law, then who is his true teacher? Jesus. And he's going to be saved because Jesus is his teacher, and he's going to be a true nomokos, a true expert in the law, because he's going to understand the law as what it is, reflecting the very heart of God, and the very heart of God is mercy. That doesn't preach easy in a Lutheran pulpit. That's what I think is really going on here. So it's not, again, the law pitted against faith or the law pitted against Jesus. It's the law without Jesus pitted against the law with Jesus. The law is self-serving mechanism versus the law is outpouring of mercy. You get glimmers of this all throughout the Old Testament, but maybe most, most apropos for our purposes. And Jesus quotes this himself in a similar context in Matthew. But it's Hosea 6.6. Do I have it right? Okay, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Everybody with their computers, (laughs) I trust you guys more. Yeah. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. What's wrong with sacrifice? There's absolutely nothing wrong with sacrifice. But sacrifice is not to be put in the place of mercy, or you can't do sacrifice and be without mercy and please God, you see. So there we've just got another aspect of the law. The law is sacrifice. That's where it comes from, okay? But it's been misread apart from faith in Yahweh, apart from receipt of Jesus, his son, and it has been understood simply as a mechanism of self-preservation, ex opera operato in the 16th century theological vocabulary. If I just do the sacrifices, God will let me have eternal life, right? Okay. If I just keep the commandments, God will let me have eternal life, right? 
just all self-centered. It's not actually the law at all. I don't desire sacrifice. I desire mercy. I don't desire your robotic obedience so that you can self-servingly land in heaven. I desire mercy. And if you come to know me as your teacher, my mercy will flow unto you and flow unto others. And that, that'll cause me to pivot grammatically. I'll show you something that I think is, uh, re-triggers us then, something in grammatically in Jesus' answer, uh, re-triggers us to reread the parable in a different way. And then we'll find ourselves reading it in the way that the church fathers read it ultimately, and in the way that it's so frequently depicted in our minds and in our artwork. Okay, but before I pivot and do that, I saw a hand or, yeah, please. Do you understand the sacrifice as giving something up? The sacrifice in the temple being giving up a bull or a goat or whatever. That's giving something up, right? This man gives something up, but he doesn't give it up at the temple. He gives it up for his neighbor. So they're both sacrificing, but where is their sacrifice directed seems to be mm. a difference. Yeah, sure. I mean, their, yeah, their hearts are very different. That's the thing. So if you take, like, I desire um, mercy and not sacrifice, what kind of sacrifice does God not want? He doesn't want the sacrifice of a dead-hearted person who has no mercy toward anyone, who has no love of the Father within him, and is just going through the motions so that he can get more stuff for himself. He's completely in curvatus and say, he views the law, he's curbed in on himself, and he views the law as a mechanism, and he's only going to do the law insofar as it serves himself getting into eternal life or getting into heaven. Yeah. I mean, in this sense, it's where there is parallels to the Reformation, because that's like the meritorious use of the law. You know, I'm just going to view the law of God as the ladder I climb in order to get out of purgatory and into heaven, out of this life, into purgatory, out of purgatory, into heaven. I'm just going to keep climbing, but it's all for me. I mean, there would be the tangent with maybe the 16th century system. But the caricature of the 16th century answer that's come about in 20th and 21st century Lutheranism is no, forget the law altogether. It's just Jesus or it's just faith or it's just grace. It's just, you know, and that's nonsense. So what would be my proof text for this? Well, look at the study Bible itself and uh, under note 37 and look how Luther himself treats this. So under the note on 37, uh, about five lines down, Luther's court is saying our neighbor is any human being, especially the one who needs our help as Christ interprets it in Luke 10 and following. So same, same thing that came, uh, that comes later or wait a minute. Yeah, no, that's in this section. That's what he's referring to. So according to Luther, like Luther himself is going to stick to the text. He's not going to do this fancy stuff that Lutherans have been doing for like the last 50 or 60 years. You say you were, you were taught that seminary? Yeah, so I mean, I preach as well. It just it it just does violence to the text ultimately, and I'm not so kind of like this idea of like immediately jumping on what must I do to inherit eternal life. I mean, it's a fair point. It, the point comes across in American culture in a in a helpful way. So I'm not trying to just you know be that seagull that 
does one right on the windshield of your freshly washed car. Like, that's not what I'm trying to do here. Okay. But I, but what I am critical of is that that take sets you up to completely not understand what Jesus is saying. And that, that take, that little insight sets you up to completely misread and misunderstand a huge, huge portion of Jesus' theology to the point where ultimately, if you were honest, you'd say Jesus doesn't really get law and gospel. Yeah, kind of a problem. Yes, sir. So I'm going to operate under the fact that there's no such thing as a bad or stupid question. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so I went around, uh, there's so many thoughts in my head. I really like it. I'm looking at like the literary storytelling aspect of it and how pretty it is and um, the number of threes and listing and examples. And so I forgot, but I know the number three pops up a lot throughout the Bible. Um, and it seems that when he gives examples more often than not, it's always listing. And then teaching English, I also come into the stuff where I tell them that if you're going to put commas in there, you need at least three items in the list. You can't have more, but you need three, and they all settle for just three because that's the yeah, that's yeah. A small number. Yeah. Um, but like he could have been the original like listing person, you know. Anyway, uh, the number of three like is there an importance or is it just there? Often is, but not always. Are you are you referring chiefly to the priest, the Levite, and the? Yeah, I, I think that, that that beauty and that symmetry, obviously God's three, and obviously he's written that beauty and symmetry into us, and I think that that's why it recurs all the time. I don't think there's any particular significance here to there being three. And there are times where Jesus breaks that. I mean, there are four kinds of soil, effectively. Yeah, so it's not always that you find that pattern, but frequently enough. Um, did he know... His whole life was going to end that particular way. Jesus? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he knew. Um, I mean, he's so ahead of time. He knows exactly how uh, his passion is going to go. Yeah. And with remarkable detail. I mean, eerie detail. Yeah. And you can see how on, I should probably preach on this one of these days around Good Friday, but it's completely implausible that Jesus would have ended up crucified on a cross. It's so implausible that Pilate himself is like, there's no case. Go to Herod. And Herod's like, there's no case. Go to Pilate. And Pilate's like, there's still no case. But somehow he still ends up on that cross on Friday afternoon. Why? And the answer is because of the scriptures. Because heaven and earth may pass away, but those scriptures won't pass away. And those scriptures have him on the cross. And so Jesus knows beyond the shadow of a doubt, he's going to be on that cross. Yeah. Yeah. Good questions. Good questions. Yes, sir. So let me ask this, uh, backing up a little bit. It seems like the question was asked, who is my neighbor? This parable doesn't answer that question. It, it seems to answer how we should love our neighbor, mm-hmm. the way in which the 
compassion and the mercy should flow from us. So it seemed like it's a then gave me the note from the Luther study Bible, the Luther answer, and he answered it and said, it's everybody. Because I've often wondered, is our neighbor just, you know, those in our church body, believers? Uh, but you're saying that so I, I guess I'm really saying Jesus again, like, like he does in John 3, and Nicodemus comes in, he starts to answer another answers in a different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the question Nicodemus is asking, but Jesus said, "Well, you need to be born again. You need to be born from above." So it was a different. He seems to be going a different way. So yeah. Um, and just one other thought. Uh, the uh, this 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 way that we love, this way that we show mercy, we don't have a lot of compassion and mercy in us in our old man, in our old nature. It's God working through us. Mm-hmm. Yep. And us uh, uh, allowing God's love to be shown through us. Do I have that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so when we see that happening, we see ourselves showing compassion Yeah. So, uh, anyway. That's probably wise, by the way. Yeah. 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 We live in a, we live in a even more wicked age than they did. That's for sure. Switch between what the who is my neighbor, and all of a sudden we, we see how a neighbor should be, how you should love a neighbor, uh-huh. yeah. instead of who it is. Yeah, you may be queuing in on something. I'll, I'd like to cue in on that. It'll give us the reread or the double entendre that I see in this text. Okay, so um, just to go back to this aspect, desiring to justify himself, he said to Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Again, I don't think this has to do with his standing before God per se. Even if it does, it can still be worked out. I don't think that that's it. Um, But who is my neighbor? And remember, I talked about the trap. Like if he says, hey, it's just Jews, there's a problem. If he says everybody, there's a problem. Okay, so he's got he's got the um, he's got the Samaritan who is hated by the Jews and he's got the hated guy serving those who hate him. Who's the hated guy who's serving those who hate him? There's your tip-off that the Samaritan is Jesus. The teacher hates Jesus. Okay, And so where this really boils down is, let me show you grammatically what I think Jesus does with a twinkle in his eye. Okay. And I don't, and I'm not alone in this because obviously this is, this becomes a dominant reading of this text. And I think ultimately it is the way we're supposed to land on this text. I think level one, layer one is that the essence of, if Jesus is your true teacher, the law isn't something you do in order to 
inherit eternal life. The law is something you do because you are merciful hearted as your teacher is merciful hearted. And the law you understand as mercy. Okay. That's level one. But Barry, maybe to your point, um, you'll want to put like one finger on verse 29 and one finger on verse 36. And I think the English, I think the English gets you there. Let's try. Okay. At 29, who is my neighbor? Which is different than who is a neighbor unto me. There's a subtle difference, but there's a subject switch. Are you grasping what I'm saying? Like, okay, who is my neighbor versus who is being a neighbor unto me? All right. So who is my neighbor? Now look at this, look at the way that Jesus flips it. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man? Okay, I think that there's a subtle subject change there. And I think that that's part of what Jesus is doing. I mean, remember, this is a rabbinical tete-a-tete. This is technical. And I think that there's a subtle shift there that is coupled with the fact that the Jewish people hate the Samaritan and the Samaritan saves the Jewish man. This Jewish nomakos hates Jesus and Jesus is going to end up saving him. The nomakos is like, who's my neighbor that I can do the, you know, maybe that I can do the bare minimum or, or who do you, you know, I'm going to trap you. I hate you. And Jesus is going to be the one, just as the Samaritan helps the Jew who hates him, Jesus is going to be the one who helps this teacher who hates him. So I think that there's these these subtleties that are going on that as you ponder this, then at the secondary level, you start to see that Jesus is the hated one. And I think you can see this in a number of different ways. This is really where there are just sermonic elements as opposed to straight up exegetical elements. But this has been around forever, forever in the church. All the church fathers, all the, all the great art in the church sees Jesus as the good Samaritan ultimately, right? It's just how do you get there? Because you don't get there at a level one read of the text. You get there at a level two read of the text. You get there by contemplating the dynamics. You get there by contemplating the subtle grammatical shift in subject. You get there by revisiting it and going, who, you know, the Jews hated the Samaritan. Who is it that's hating Jesus? The Samaritan saves a Jew. Jesus is saving this lawyer, this nomakos. I think that that's, that's ultimately where you get to Jesus as the Good Samaritan. I think it's a valid read. I think it's ultimately where Jesus wants us to get. Because you go and do likewise means, strictly speaking, you go be the Good Samaritan. But who ultimately, if Jesus is your teacher, is your Good Samaritan? He, he himself. So I think that that's how you reflect on this. But it's a secondary, it's a second level reflection where you go, Jesus is the Good Samaritan. He's my Good Samaritan. Therefore, I should be the Good Samaritan unto others. That's where you land. Yes, sir. So when um, the Samaritan says to the innkeeper, take care of him and I will repay you when I come back. Yeah. Is he talking about the resurrection? 
Yeah, in effect. So we, I mean, we can run through that real quick. We get, oh, let me just keep it. I, I've made this as difficult as I think I can possibly make it. All, all while trying to make this as simple as I could possibly make it. I mean, there's the irony. So let's keep this second part real simple, okay? I, um, there's a more complicated layer here. I'm just going to avoid that. So at verse 33, look at the Samaritan. As he journeyed, I mean, even there, there's a difference because... The son of man has no place to lay his head. He is journeying or sojourning. This is not his home and he's passing through. There would be the first point of comparison. I mean, aside from the fact that the Samaritan is hated by the Jews and who else is hated by the Jews? Jesus. Okay. The Samaritan is seen as an outsider. Jesus very clearly is an outsider. He comes from heaven. The Samaritan is, we're seen as heretics. Jesus is seen as a heretic. Okay. So even in Samaritan, there's some similarities. The Samaritan is journeying. So is Jesus. He comes to where the man is. When he saw him, he had, that's the splagnitzo uh, that Vicar has taught us about. That's the compassion of the heart. So there's another verbal cue that this is Jesus who is always having the splagnitzo, the compassion towards those. So there's another hint that this is Jesus. He went to him and bound up his wounds. Okay. This is Jesus healing us. Oil and wine are always uh, heavily symbolically laden in the Old Testament scriptures with the things of God. Okay. You can think of the oil of anointing, which would be baptism, because in baptism, you are, uh, remember the language of christened? Christ. So baptism is to be Christed, christened. And frequently, though it's not necessary for our purposes, oil, you would be anointed with oil as soon as you were done being baptized as a symbolic element of that. But even earlier than that is the etymology that you are being anointed, you are being christened. So Christ means anointed one. You're anointed by the waters of holy baptism. You are christened, you're Christed. Okay, but just as the kings of old were uh, anointed with oil, the baptized became anointed with oil. You've got this whole theology, but the pouring on of oil would, in other words, be a type of baptism, and the wine would be a type of the Lord's Supper. So you have this binding up of the wounds and this healing via the sacraments. This is the way the church fathers often interpreted it in their sermons and writings. He set him on his own animal, Again, there's not a lot done with this that's convincing, so I won't attempt any of it. Brought him to an inn. The inn would be the church. It's usually how it's seen. And then uh, took care of him there. And then he took out the two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper. So the two denarii are going to be paid to do what? Heal the man. So this is often you know, the price Christ paid on the cross in order to affect our healing. Okay. But in this case, you know, who does he give the denarii to? The innkeeper. Who's the innkeeper? The pastor who's supposed to watch over the soul until, uh, you know, or until he's healed. Okay? That's, the, that's in effect how this is usually interpreted. Take care of him. So then the, this becomes a dominical command to pastors. Take care of him, which is exactly parallel to what the Lord himself did at the end of 34. Taking care of him. How? 
applying oil and wine, putting him on his own animal, etc., binding up his wounds. So also then the pastoral task and whatever more you will spend, I will repay you when you come back. So again, the cost is ultimately going to be borne by me, innkeeper, pastor, not by you. So spare no expense. It will be repaid when I come back. Okay, so that's frequently how it's read. And so Christ is the good Samaritan who rescues the man. Um, and then, but, but precisely the point would be that in being rescued by Jesus and seeing yourself by res- being rescued by him, part of that rescuing, part of that healing is that you come to see the law the way he sees it. So you become a namakos that views the law not as a self-serving way of getting into heaven, but as the very expression of the merciful heart of God, the merciful heart of your Savior, your merciful heart being poured out unto those who hate you. Just as the Samaritan was hated and poured out, so now you, when you're hated by your enemies, pour out. Make sense? So that's the secondary reflection, the fullness of the reflection. But again, I think it's absolutely essential you get level one, so to speak, before you get level two, and then once you've got both those together, you've got the whole thing. Yes, sir. Why didn't the uh, Jews hate the Samaritans? Because um, the Samaritans, so historically speaking, remember when Assyria comes down and swallows up the 10, these were, um, these were the Israelites that didn't get swallowed up in captivity, didn't get exiled, but stayed in the land, and they intermarried, which is big no-no, and in intermarrying, everything got twisted and changed. So they got viewed to be uh, half-breeds and uh, heretics. Um, if you want to... I'm sorry? Was it pagan? No, not fully. If you want to look like biblically at what their theology was, uh, I, I think the best place to go would be to go to Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. Because what they actually have is a theological argument, and Jesus flat out calls her a heretic. Um, it, it, I mean, yeah, flat out says, you know, you don't understand who it is you worship. When you say God, you have no idea what you're talking about. He ends up converting her, so she becomes a Christian. But you can, if you really want to analyze the theological differences, Gerizim versus Sinai or uh, Zion, depending on how you're thinking about it. Um, Zion, probably, ultimately. Um, And then the nature of worship. Yeah. So John 4. It's a strong word. They're they're different. They think differently. They act differently. Sort of like the uh, Jews and the Palestinians. It's just craziness. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe so. Okay, any more thoughts on the Good Samaritan? I made it harder, but I hope I made it truer. And I hope I made it more holistic and wholesome. And if even if I didn't maybe get it 100%, I think I got as close as I'm able. At least we're like in the 90s now, instead of like in the 40s or 50s, which if I gave you the straight up just canned ham Lutheran version, we'd be 40 or 50 percentile. I just think that the concept of being merciful is very consistent with what he said in other areas. He stressed the importance of being merciful in other areas. Yeah, once you glimpse this, it 
starts clearing up a whole bunch of Old Testament passages that are otherwise utterly bizarre. So I mentioned one, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, but like um, sacrifice you did not desire, but a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. So these things like against the sacrifices and sometimes even against the law itself. uh, And what's always juxtaposed with that is justice or righteousness or mercy. And when you start to wrap your head around that, you start to wrap your head around what the heresies of the Old Testament were, how those bleed into the New Testament. And then you also start to see how Paul's thinking about the law, not as something that needs to be torn away, but something that needs to be understood as it truly is. Where, where Paul's really going at it is not a 16th century view of the law. It's a little bit anachronistic. Luther and friends knew that. They just knew Paul more sophisticated, or yeah, Paul more sophisticated than we do. If you are using the law to self-justify, you are using it in an inherently selfish way. That use of the law is put away. But understanding the law at its essence is to remember what St. Paul says, delight in the law of God. And again, I think the quickest way we can do this as Lutherans is to view the cross itself as the essence of the law, which I know that'll scatter our categories a little bit. So be it. Um, Because on the cross, which is the essence of the gospel, Christ for you is precisely the absolute telos and fulfillment of the law. There he is loving God, even when God has forsaken him. There he is loving his neighbor as himself, even when his neighbor is literally crucifying him, blaspheming him, spitting on him, stripping him naked in front of his mother and all his enemies. There is loving God and man in a way that's absolutely unfathomable, unfathomable, and that is the essence of the gospel. So when you understand this, then you're going to understand that the law doesn't go away the law gets understood in its true sense as the very heart and essence of God, the very heart and essence of mercy for another, which is also identical to faithfulness to God and love for neighbor. So once you understand that, you understand Paul, you understand the old Lutherans better, and you understand how how far we've fallen from grace, but you get a window back into the scriptures and back into what it means to really walk with Jesus in this way of the law, in this way of mercy. Okay, I've probably overdone it. So I know we're a couple minutes over time. Um, All right, so I'm going to hang out a bit. If you have any questions or if you're worried I'm a heretic, let's talk. (laughs) Um, I'm not trying to do anything contrary to the Lutherans, uh, of course, but modern Lutheranism, yeah, I'm I'm a little opposed to certain parts of that. Um, Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. 
just for context, can you give me the other way that this is possible that Jesus is Samaritan? You said there was the can't handle it. What would that be? Real quick, I'm sorry to So what do I have to do to inherit eternal life is the first question. Okay, haha, you can't do anything, so Jesus is going to do it, got you. Just do the whole law, that's it. Okay, but the man wants to justify himself. That is, he wants to be righteous in front of God on the basis. So he thinks that if he can narrow the law down, then maybe he can do it. I don't find that move plausible whatsoever. Okay, but so, I mean, because then the man, anyway, I'm so, sorry, I'm starting to get away from the can hand and make my argument. All right, so the can hand goes, he still wants to justify himself, so he narrows it. What Jesus does by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan is he shows the man that he cannot save himself. He, in fact, is the man beaten up by the side of the road. The law won't help him. The priest and the Levite pass by, but Jesus, the good Samaritan, will help him. Amen. Now, don't you dare read that verse that says you go and do likewise, because that'll ruin the whole thing. That'll rug pull the whole thing. So. Yeah, you have to make a bunch of really like logical jumps to get there, and in preaching it's easy to do because nobody can ask you any questions. <laughs> the better of the sermons will be haunted by the better of the canned ham sermons, right? right like canned ham with onions or something thing is uh is okay so i want to i want to still be able to handle you go and do likewise so then it's like after you realize that you're the beaten man and jesus is the good samaritan then you can go and do likewise and and then it'll kind of end there which which again is an improvement and gets us a few percentage points maybe in a couple uh yeah a couple tens of percentage points higher um in acknowledging that but not many Lutheran preachers are going to do that because you're ending on good works, which has been verboten for like, yeah, a long time. Makes sense. Thank you. I knew that, but that put it all in So this was. If you if you read like so that same way the canned ham version of this goes the Lutheran if you go through the Sermon on the Mount it's virtually all law and it's just all Jesus punishing us and torturing us and then supposedly we're told that be, the gospel always has to dominate the law but we're left with Jesus preaching the entire Sermon on the Mount without that happening. So then this gets answered in a number of different ways. The most honest say that Jesus was developing his theology and didn't know it fully. Yet. Can you imagine the hubris? The same gets applied to Luther. You know, why doesn't Luther preach this law gospel way we're all supposed to? Well, well his theology was brilliant. His preaching hadn't caught up yet. I mean, which is just preposterous. How's your theology going to be one thing and you're preaching another? Okay. So understanding then that the law for Jesus is not meant to self-justify, but meant to be um, the essence of God's love and the essence of God's mercy. Now you go into uh, the Sermon on the Mount and you'll understand so many parts that you mistook as condemning law as the gospel way. Among those, the Beatitudes, right off the bat, right? And then um, where Jesus says, unless you, this is kind of the linchpin to getting this, 
unless you have a righteousness that is greater than that of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom. Now, the Lutheran can't hand, and by, by Lutheran, I, should, I need to come up with something else. The modern Lutheran, the radical Lutheran, okay? Because you go back to the 16th century, and they're on board with me, and I'm on board with them, okay? So it's this thing that's happened in the, in the 20th century here. And their answer is, well, you have to have the forensic justification. You have to have the blood of Jesus, and that's the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. What's the problem with that? If that's true, Jesus never says it. The entire rest of the sermon, he never says it. But what he does lay out is the righteousness of the Pharisees is precisely, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. And they're like, yep, got that. And Jesus tells them the deeper righteousness that his disciples will have. Well, that's impossible because that would require a change of the heart. It's the very heart that's the problem. It's the heart that leads to murder. It's the heart that leads to lust, or the eye, rather, that leads to lust, and so on and so forth. You'd have to be an entirely new person. That's exactly what Jesus has come to do. That's what it means to be his disciple, is you will be a totally new person, and you will have a totally new relationship to his law. And his law will look 100% different to you. And you will ontologically have a righteousness that completely excels that of the Pharisees in the same way that a good tree is entirely different than a bad tree. And the good fruit is entirely different than the bad fruit. And so when you hit that part in the Sermon on the Mount, now you're going, this is pure gospel. This is what Jesus has come to do is the new creation, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's probably way more than you wanted, but anymore the law has just the way people have the law is so you got you've got paul saying he delights in the law that's like the biggest problem i mean you want to talk about a a broom handle and the bicycle spokes of modern lutheranism but then the other thing is psalm 119 the longest psalm of all is a love song to the law and and i and they try to go no, no no it's just a love song to the word of god as if the word of god doesn't contain things that you should say and do i mean you can't avoid it it's a love song to the bible if and if it's a love song to the bible it's a love song to the law and those things that god would have us say and do because again we're made in his image and so to be remade into that image to be made new is to begin to think the way he thinks speak the way he speaks do the things he does which the heart of which is mercy yeah 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 Oh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't. So it's just you stick around in the scriptures long enough and you really like, I mean, I think in the first place, believe that Jesus actually is the best theologian and then try to think the way he thinks instead of the way like something else tells you he's thinking. Recipe for goodness. Yeah, recipe for goodness. 